Hi, good morning. That's, that's such a great um, welcome and introduction. I just want to say before I even start this morning, just how full my heart, Katie's heart, I know Franklin's heart, um, when he left last night, our hearts are full having spent time with you. Um, and I mean that. I, I won't just say that because we've been here Friday night and all day yesterday. We are going home not depleted but filled up. And that has everything to do with just your culture and community. So thank you for that. Um, truly, it, it's a mark of who you are. Um, Elijah is truly one of my favorite people. I actually was texting some of our mutual friends last night with a picture of him. And I said, this guy really is one of my favorites. And they, they agreed. And I would assume, I didn't know till we put feet on the ground here, that one of my favorite people had lots of other favorite people in his family. And, and that, that was really proven to be true. I mean, we love it here. We're like, can we live here? Can we come back? Can we come back for vacation? And, and that's just the people in this building. So thank you. I encourage you, um, my dear friend, my teammate, Katie, um, I encourage you after the service, get to know her. She stuck around so I wouldn't travel back by myself. That's a really good friend to do that. But also, I think she's kind of like, and it's really fun here too. <laughs> so she agrees with all those sentiments. Um, before we get started this morning, just talking through anything, um, just going to invite the Lord again, and then we're going to be in Matthew 25 um, when I'm done praying. So Father, we just want to behold you this morning. Jesus, we want to see you. We want to know you. So I just ask that the words that come out of my mouth just point to you in all ways. Uh, we trust you. Lead us and guide us this morning, Lord, in your name. So if you have a Bible, if you have it on your phone, either way is fine. I invite you to just open to Matthew 25. We're going to look at 1 through 13, and I'm just going to start reading. This is, um, I can honestly say, my favorite parable in scripture, and, and you'll see why soon. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent or wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent or wise took oil and flask along with their lamps. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, there was a shout, behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, no, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast and the door was shut. Later, the other bridesmaids also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Beautiful passage of scripture, deep with meaning, deep with 
warning, deep with encouragement. We're going to dive into that in just a second. But before we dive into this text, I just wanted to share a little bit of a personal story this morning. Um, I'm going to have Taylor throw this picture up on the screen. So this was the view um, in my front yard just about two weeks ago. Before it was dug up like that, um, one night, my husband and I um, went for a walk after dinner while the ground was still green and covered. And as we're going along the front of the house, we notice right near the road, but still on our property, this mini swamp happening. It's just kind of this bubbling, gross swamp. And my husband went, how long has that been there? And I said, not too long, because it's the first time I'm seeing it. And that yard is so green. We have worked hard on that grass. Nashville weather in the summer can kind of kill things. We have worked so hard on that grass. And it was a perfect green grass view, perfect Nashville lawn, just no weeds. We, we like for it to look like that. And now we have a mini swamp right in the center. And it's right by the line, the water line from the street and the little place where you can check the meter. And we're like, okay, that's great. If you have an older home, ours is 1958 when it was constructed. If you know, you know. You know what that's all about. And I just want to pause and say, I hope you feel the love this morning. This is an extremely expensive sermon illustration for you that I have brought you. Like, I'm bringing my best today. So we're standing in front of the yard, and I don't know why we did this. We just kept walking. Like, we're not even going to look. We're not even going to raise it up. We're just like, let's keep walking. And immediately in my heart, even though I have owned several houses in my lifetime, denial set in. Immediately, I was like, well, maybe it's just this little collection of water that happened six days ago when it rained, even though the rest of our yard is completely dry and the heat index is 100. Maybe it just, you know, it's hanging out right there. Maybe there's a dip in the lawn. Everything else is bone dry. My flowers are dying. My ferns are dying. But we have a nice swamp land right here and, you know, just a, a freak of nature maybe. Or, once I realized that's probably not the case, it's definitely the city's fault, right? The city is going to have to take care of this. I mean, it is closer to the road than it is to our actual house. Maybe it broke under the pavement of the road, and it's just kind of flowing into our yard. The city takes care of it when it's in the road. It's got to be them. My husband's like, mm, probably not. He's like, you can call and ask, which you know I did. I asked just to make sure. Surely the city's going to cover this. And here's the thing. That water line was old. It had been there since the house was built. And I had not been there since the house was built. But when we took ownership of that property, that water line, it was, it was the original and likely what was happening, a couple of droplets were seeping out as it cracked and started just to release the water that's in there that's supposed to be coming to my house. And then eventually, we have a problem over time, and now it's bubbling to the surface. That problem that was unseen all of a sudden became really seen, and it was a big nightmare when we were finally aware of what happened. And here's the thing. That problem had been there for I don't know how long. It's hard to guess. I couldn't see it. There wasn't evidence 
of an issue until it was too late. Like once your lawn starts to become a swamp, there is no going back. There's no little, could we just fix like a foot of it? It's not how it works. You've got to start from the beginning and dig everything up. And if you have a home that's beyond a certain age, there's a looming reality that at some point you're going to have to replace that line if you haven't already. And here's what's really interesting about my own personal story. I don't know, we sort of have a love for things that are kind of falling apart or broken and need restored. I don't know if that's just indicative of our life. So this home, when we bought it, needed some TLC, and we were happy to give it to it. We replaced all the plumbing on the inside. A couple years ago, replaced the line that went out to the road, the sewer line, because that one fell apart. And we just kind of hoped that the source would be okay. Because, you know, who wants to do that unnecessarily? In my denial mind, I thought, maybe it'll last till I die. You don't know. I mean, way back when they made things, well, maybe, maybe it's going to be all right. Maybe it'll last if we sell the house. It's, it's just there. No one wants to dig everything up looking for an unseen problem, especially one of those. But, but maybe we should. Maybe we should start digging, knowing that there's going to be something that's dripping out that originally was okay but could cause a problem. Maybe we should. Here's the thing. If we want revival in our hearts, in our churches, in our cities and communities, we have to awaken to the unseen need and we have to start right here. We have to start right here prior to it becoming an obvious, gaping, huge nightmare of a need. We should assume, hey, there's something in here that could get cracked and it could start leaking out. There is a need and it is in every single one of us. Let's look back at Matthew 25. Here's the deal. There were five foolish bridesmaids. Some of your translations may say maidens, virgins, bridesmaids, wedding party. There were five foolish and there were five wise, but they were all invited into the party. Some of you in here who are married or who have served as bridesmaids, you're like, that's about right. That's normally how it looks, right? Like everybody's in, but we've got our girls that are wise. We have our girls that are doing some dumb things during the wedding feast, right? So this is true to life. They all had lamps, even the foolish, and they all needed oil. So there's a leveling kind of everybody's on the same page when we start. If you're used to carrying around lamps, and their lamps were really different than ours, if they were carrying lamps, you don't really pay much attention to the oil reserve that you can't see. What are you paying attention to? You're, you're holding it so it's steady. Their lamps, I think, were actually more beautiful than ours. And you're paying attention to the light. You're trying to protect that light so it doesn't burn out, so you don't drop the lamp. You're holding the lamp. Look at the lamp. Here it is. And the light, but you're not really looking at the oil. You're focused, but there is a reservoir of energy underneath, and it has to be replenished. It has to be replaced. It has to be tended. 
or the light burns out. All ten maidens, or bridesmaids, had lamps, and they all understood, it's clear in the text, they all understood that they needed fuel to burn. When I read this passage, and this is just my interpretation, but some other theologians as well, I assume at the beginning of this that not only did they understand that, all 10 actually had some oil in their lamps when they started, because who goes out in a wedding party at the beginning of chapter 25 to meet the groom without your lamp being lit? So everybody's starting at least with something in there. The five foolish took no extra oil with them, but the wise bridesmaids actually had flask of oil. Again, some of your bridesmaids may have had flask of other things, but these guys, they had the oil, and they were ready. They were prepared. They had a reserve. We have to awaken to the unseen need that that place where the oil is burning up exists, even though we can't see it sometimes, And if we don't have extra, we will run out. We should just go ahead and assume that we will and prepare for it. Now, I know how it works in a room like this. Some of you have already stopped listening to me because you are thinking, well, this doesn't apply to me because I'm a wise bridesmaid. I know that I am. There's no question. And I would offer that some of you thinking that might be the very same people who let the tank on your car run all the way to empty just to see how long you can go without filling it up. Like, I know it's on empty, but I know I've got at least 15 more miles because I read it in the book, in the manual. It's on empty, but that's really not empty. I can still go a little bit more. You're the same people. I can be that person sometimes too, so I'm I'm not judging As human beings, it is in our fallen nature to test this, to tempt the odds. We do it all the time. It's how we work. How far can I go on the E button without getting gasoline? How hard can I work without burning myself out? How many days can I go sleep deprived before I just collapse and have nothing else to offer? How far can we go on fumes and trust that it's going to be okay? This is what we do. Here's the thing. If we're not worried about this or focused on it, or at least a little bit concerned about it, something is wrong. And this passage is here to sober us up and say, hey, don't assume that you can run on fumes here because there will be a day when you cannot. I speak with young moms all the time. I was laughing yesterday because at one point in our training, Katie was the young mom and I was the old mom. Like I'm I'm now at that age where I'm speaking to younger moms or moms that are going to be moms. They're not there yet. And the ones who come to me just shaken, they're like, I'm worried I'm going to be a horrible mom. I'm I'm worried I'm doing this wrong. And I always say, the fact that you're worried says that you're not. It's the ones that aren't worried that should be worried and are probably going to stumble into some things that they're not going to like. We should be worried, even if we think we're okay here. I think it's a dangerous assumption to believe that we have all the reserve that we need with God and that we don't have an underlying problem. 
I don't care how mature you are in the faith, how long you've been a believer or follower of Jesus, this parable should sober us up fast and wake us up to the unseen reality that there is a deficit and we have to awaken to that need that we could and will run out of oil if we're not focused on it. Even when you believe and probably know that you're a wise bridesmaid, I assume on some level that I am. I also quickly go and assume that I'm a foolish one and I start to prepare accordingly. Once we know of that unseen need, once we're like, it's there, it could run out, it could leak, it could cause a swamp and I have nothing to light my lamp with anymore, we must quickly repent of the depletion and the condition of our hearts. That should be the next thing that happens, almost knee-jerk reaction without thinking about it. I've sat in this parable for many, many years, and I'm, I'm always learning new things about it. I love it. I'll ask pastor friends, what do you think this means? What do you think this symbolism is pointing to? What do you think this sums up to And I would offer, this is just me offering with some study, that the lamp itself represents the condition of our heart before God. And that that oil in the bottom of it, that oil is the abiding, connected communion with God that happens through the work of the Holy Spirit. So you can have a lamp out here that's seen for everyone, That's the condition, your condition before God. But it's that oil, that abiding closeness, nearness, led by the Holy Spirit that is your fuel. And here's the thing. We can talk about revival all day. And I'm in settings all the time, especially with freedom prayer and and working with churches. We can talk about revival all day. And please hear me. I want it. I have been looking since I was 19 years old. I'm like, where is it? I want to be there. There's something to that. We can try to mimic what we've seen and what we've read because we're hungry for it. But it does not happen ever without true repentance and getting low before God and saying, I actually don't have it. I actually don't have it, even though I've known Jesus for 10 days, 10 years, 30 years. I still don't have it. I have not arrived, and that is sobering, and I'm waking up to this need that it's got to be you. In order for us to truly repent, and repentance is a grace. If, you've, if that word has damage for you in your growing up years, I want to switch it today. Repentance is the most phenomenal grace because it just says, I can't do it like this anymore. And I turn and I run to a good God who says, come on, I'm running to you too. That's how it works. I go broken and needy. And he goes, yeah, let me remind you who you are now that you're back in my proximity close. Repentance is the best. We should be doing it daily. In order to truly repent, to truly turn, we have to understand what this parable is saying. And I'm just going to open-handedly offer to you what I think it's saying. Let's make sure that we're kind of on the same page. The bridegroom in chapter 25, that's Jesus. The groom is coming back to meet and, and be joined with 
his bride, the church. That's his inheritance. That's his prize. That's his promised, his promised joy. Did you know that you are the thing that delights his heart more than any other thing? That's what he's coming for. And everyone is expecting him to do that. There's preparations being made. The ten virgins or bridesmaids or maidens, whatever your Bible says they are, they are representative of the church that will be around right before he returns. So you have some foolish ones, some wise ones, but they're all in the party going, hey, we think he's coming soon. And it looks very conditional to that Hebrew culture where weddings went on for days. I wish we'd go back to that. I'm always sad when I'm at a wedding for like four hours. I'm like, we should keep this going. I I think that's a holy thing. So they, the bridesmaids, or the church that is looking for him and they know he's coming, they go out with their lamps, foolish and wise. And you can, interpret, you can interpret that lots of different ways. I just think it's a public display that the church will have specifically in that time. It will be public works, public ministry. People are going to see it. And if you go, well, how did you get that? Well, it's dark and they have lamps. Um, I don't know about you, but if you've been around a wedding party, they, they normally can be seen. Nashville, I think, may be the number one spot for bridesmaids parties. That's, that's not something I'm super proud about sometimes. But, I mean, you see them when they're there. There's a lot going on. Katie and I saw a group last night by where we were staying. They're noticeable, but it's dark. And that darkness is really specific in this parable too. But they all have lamps. They've gone out. They're waiting for Jesus. The lamps are public. And that's a good thing if it's ministry and works but it's the oil that matters. It's all about the oil. I'm a believer that the Bible can translate itself. The Bible can translate the Bible, right? And oil represents the Holy Spirit again and again. It's that intimacy with God. It's that place where you are constantly being filled by him, not I got baptized and saved, and I I was given the Holy Spirit as part of my birthright. This is everyday Christian believer for 40 years. Jesus, fill me with your spirit. I know I'm depleted. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Like, let's keep it going. It's not a one and done. It's an everyday kind of thing. It's what's inside our hearts and what's hidden that really matters. Not how impressive our outward lives are. If anything, sometimes I think that disqualifies us more than gets us in. It's not how impressive our ministry is or how many souls are saved. And I know that may make you go, wait, what? It's the oil. That's what he sees. If the oil is a lifestyle of being daily filled by the Spirit in the secret place with God, then we should all raise our hands really fast and say, hey, I know and acknowledge that I'm depleted there in that place. I'll go first. I am more desperate than I have ever been for this. 
how many good things in my life try to hijack that time, intercept that time? How often am I distracted in trying to get the holy work of ministry done without cultivating the richness that's there and the place where the Lord is offering it to me freely? That is all he's waiting for. So I will happily go first in that confession. I've known the Lord almost my whole life closely, but I am increasingly and constantly aware of this need in my heart, in my spirit. I go running back to the Lord, desperate. I don't go running like, hey, look at me. Look at what I'm doing. Look at how long I've been a believer, how many people I bring. I'm like, I am empty And I know that you have more. And even on the days when I feel like I'm getting pretty full, I know I'm just getting a taste of what is available to me. I want it all. Show me how to get it all, God. Running back to the Lord, desperate, daily asking to be filled to overflowing, acknowledging my ability in certain seasons to live sort of comfortably off the scraps when the banqueting table is set to overflowing. And I'm like, I'll just take this and I'll be on my way. That should sober me up so fast to the reality of how dangerous that is for my future, for my heart, for my relationship with Jesus. The lamp may be pretty, it may be impressive, it may look good, but without oil, it is useless. No good to anybody. Once we repent and return and run back near to God, we must have a solitary, steadfast, laser focus on seeking that source of oil. We have to find oil. We must get oil, and we have to get it in reserve, bags of oil. Revival happens when we start to awaken to that need, repent that there is a deficit there, and then we lay down every other pursuit, even the good-looking ones, and we run after the source of the oil, and we start building up that reserve so that no matter what, no matter what happens, we are still burning for Jesus. I think about gathering oil like my grandmother used to can vegetables in her garden, in the summer, and I had a very Texas Cajun grandma, so if that helps give you some context, in the summer, she would intentionally gather those vegetables intentionally every day in her garden and preserve them in those little mason jars so they wouldn't spoil. She would intentionally then preserve them with sugar or spices, whatever she was doing, and can them up really tightly for the winter when things were harder and the weather was not so gracious to a garden. I remember her pantry and her little place in East Texas, just shelves, shelves like lined up. Again, we're talking Texas, so how bad is the winter really going to be, right? But she was prepared. Shelves and shelves of mason jars lined up with typically pickles and okra. Now, I'm a good Southern girl, and I can sit down and have a good meal of pickles and okra if I need to. The thought of living on that for a whole winter is not so appealing, but you could, right? You could survive on that. She was ready, lined up, shelves of canned vegetables. 
plenty to survive if for some reason there was an unexpected weather kind of catastrophe in Texas in the winter, which they're starting to get some, or a really hard season. She was ready. She had reserve that actually took her into the next summer. How many of us in this room can say confidently that we have a reserve of intimacy with God that's been preserved and gathered to that kind of degree of preparation? That no matter what comes our way, no matter what happens in our life, we have cultivated that secret place with God. It's hidden, it's known, but it's only known between ourselves and Him. How many of us regularly speak to God, behold God, thank Him, adore Him on such a regular minute-by-minute kind of conversation that it is just our natural first response. Nobody has to tell us to do it. We're not just doing it at church on Sunday or in a worship gathering. It's just this ongoing back and forth. Hey, I love you. I miss you. I need you. Come back. Thank you. You're beautiful. You're the best of the best. I, I long for your, your government. I long for your counsel. Like, how many of us can say that that pantry is stocked like that? That we don't have to discipline ourselves to do it anymore. It's just the overflow of our heart. I've been teaching Song of Solomon this semester. I've, I've looked at it before, but it's, it's gripping my heart. And I'm, I'm convicted and spurred on about this reserve of oil every week. It's found in an ongoing solitary life with God. I certainly haven't arrived at this. It's, it's gripped me, like it's, it's gutted me, um, but I want it. And I'm stirred and moved and I, I can't find myself just reading that book without that chapters in Song of Solomon, without longing for that place where the bride, you see the similar imagery just threaded through the narrative of Scripture. We should pay attention when we see that. The bride in Song of Solomon is saying, if you find my beloved, tell him that I am lovesick. And in the context of that book, she is saying that after she has been beaten in the streets and the onlookers who are churchy are saying, well, what kind of beloved does that? And she's like, I just have to find him because I need him. I love him. She's not mad at him. She's not distant from him. She's not blaming him. She just says, I need him to be there. That is a reserve of oil. When we're not like, well, I don't know about God because he did this, or he let me suffer this, or I'm being persecuted here, or I've had trial after trial. The response should be, where's my beloved? My heart aches for him. That kind of reserve will take an unbelieving world and make them go, yeah, what kind of beloved is that, that that's your response? What kind of beloved has your heart so tight like that, that you're not thinking about anything else right now? You're not mad. You're not bitter. You're not offended. You just want to find him. There's one glances that that book talks about with Jesus, that I love you. I love you even when it's hard. 
I thank you even when it's hard. That simple contentment of just resting with him, no agenda, no request. When his spirit ministers to my spirit and I am filled to overflowing, I'm at peace and I'm ready and I'm fit for what the bridesmaids are supposed to look like in that season. Prayer and worship isn't a chore anymore, but it's like breathing in and out. Necessary for life, but it's not work anymore. It's, it's not thought given. It's just like breathing. It's natural. Remember in this passage, all those bridesmaids had oil, but some ran out. The foolish ran out. They neglected seeking the source. Maybe it was laziness. Maybe it was distraction with some good, holy, churchy-looking things. Maybe it was ministry, work, family. Maybe it was ignorance. That happens. Maybe it was self-satisfaction, like, I'm good. But the oil ran out. Maybe they just sort of stayed on the surface with that Sunday morning Christian posturing that we know how to do, that public display that we give when we walk in the doors. But the lamp is not the display that matters. It's the hidden source of the oil. All the surfacey things we do and say, they will pass away. But we have to seek the source to stay bright and to stay burning. The oil has to be that focus. When the foolish ones recognize that the bridegroom king had arrived, and he will. We just pause. He's coming. He will arrive. They started scrambling. They looked at their wise friends. They're like, give us some of your oil. We need yours. Just give me a little bit. Let me borrow some. Friends, spiritual intimacy cannot be borrowed. Salvation does not necessarily equal intimacy. And I'm just going to lay that right there because that's what this chapter is doing. And all of us are called to examine that really closely. It's a hard word. It should sober us up. I can't bank the effectiveness of my lamp, no matter how good it looks, on some podcast that I've listened to or even good sermons. I have to cultivate it. I have to seek it. I have to preserve it for myself. These wise bridesmaids looked at their friends with wisdom and said, no, you cannot borrow ours. There will not be enough for us and for you too. Go to the dealers. Go buy some for yourself. Essentially, foolish friends, you are going to have to go start from the beginning right now and try to figure out how to gather intimacy with God quickly, but you are going to miss what's happening in this moment. Finally, in that place for revival to happen in our hearts, we have to awaken to the time. Man, I for a long time have wanted to be like Daniel, who understood the time. And he stewarded his life, understanding the time. We know from this parable that all the bridesmaids were watching. They knew there was a wedding. They were in the wedding party. They knew Jesus was coming. They were waiting. They were expectant. And the groom Jesus was delayed really significant. He was delayed in coming. All of them, wise and foolish, went to sleep. And that's not a bad thing because they all did it. It's not a bad thing to sleep in the delay of his coming if you are prepared like the bride in Song of Solomon who could sleep with her spirit 
awake. Go hunt that verse. I think it's in chapter five. Sleeping, but your spirit is awake. So the moment that the cry was heard in Matthew 25, behold, the bridegroom is coming and he's actually here. They jumped up. They were ready, the wise ones. They were alert. They were quickened. They knew what to do. They had oil. They had been longing for him to come even in their drowsy slumber, but they could come to attention just like that. It's important to note that not only with the, in that time when he was delayed, he arrived at midnight. It's really a prophetic kind of symbolism pointing to the end times church having to withstand the darkness of night, the evil, the persecution, the suffering. That dark of night, too, is the most difficult time to wake up. But if you have extra oil, you should still be burning in the delay. And getting out of bed spiritually should be instinctive because of the oil of the Spirit. I'm going to urge you, friends, today to resist pushing this parable aside based on what I just said. If you think, oh, well, this is a parable specific to the end times church, and that's not really us right now. And I would ask you, but what if it is? Maybe not now today, but how do you know that you're not? How do you know that that's not you future telling down the road, future speaking, future looking? And if not you, how do you not know that it's not your kids or their kids? There's a mandate here. It's right here, and we have to examine it. What if? What if we are to carry this forerunner message, and if not us, pass it down I told you that this was my favorite parable in Matthew 25. Only those of you in the front can see this. All that writing there is not in Matthew 25. It's Matthew 24. Because you cannot read Matthew 25 without the context of Matthew 24. He put it there to say, hey, get ready. I'm giving you sons and daughters, those who want to understand and be men and women of the times to know the signs of my return. And here, let me tell you in 25 what that church is going to have to look like to be ready. The one giving the shout, that cry, the forerunner like John the Baptist, he understood the time. Hey, we've been waiting and Jesus, the groom is here come out to meet him now. If we are awakened to the time, then we will do whatever is necessary to encounter him. We will go to him. We will meet him. We will await him. We will have a reserve of oil. We should expect him to do and be what he says he will do and be. We should jump out of our spiritual slumber and go or we miss it. He's here, but... The foolish bridesmaids are at the dealer. They have started over. They were trying to buy oil and cultivate intimacy, and it was too late. They knew, and this scares me to death, it should all of us, they knew exactly what they needed when that cry came out. <gasps> we don't have oil. Give us some of yours. It wasn't, oh, what's going on, and, and why can't we get in? What do we need to do? Do you see the difference? They knew, oh, we need oil. We thought we would have time. We thought we could borrow. We need it right now. This was not a surprise to them. They knew what was required, and they kept pushing it off. They went out 
and they bought oil. They tried to cultivate intimacy and get it, but it was too late. The bridegroom had come, and the wise bridesmaids, that church that's there right before his return, they usher in the party. The feast had started, and the door was shut. The foolish ones came knocking on the door. Lord, let us in. His response wrecks me every time. Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. That should convict us, should sober us up spiritually. It's the same response in Matthew 22 in the parable of the wedding feast when those who won't step into the garment that's been provided are not allowed in. It's the same response in that really important chapter in the middle, Matthew 24, when it says the love of many will grow cold, that lawlessness will increase and love will go cold and he won't know them. We have to awaken to the time. We have to understand the time. And here's the thing. There are those that are going to know it. They're going to know the time. They will be able to endure delay and persecution, tribulation, suffering, trial. Their beating heart in the middle of all of that will be, come, Lord Jesus. Come. And in the delay, we're just gathering oil. We're not going to stop. Pantry shelves full of it. Behold, the bridegroom has come, and they go running from that place of reserve and overflow of the Spirit. They're prepared. They're expectant for it. It's what they've been waiting for. If we're awakened to these things, revival's just the natural byproduct. Our hearts can't help it. Let me pray for us. Lord, I just ask just the way that this parable just levels us. It's a leveler. It doesn't matter who you are, what you do, what you know. This kind of puts everybody on the same page. And so I just, friends in the room, I invite you, if you're, if you're in this place with me, just collectively just start to cry out internally. You could do it quietly in your seat, like, Lord, we need oil. Lord, even if I have it, I don't have enough. Lord, make my gaze on you so steadfast and solitary that that is all I'm after. Everything else is just a byproduct, but I need the reserve. I want the reserve. Just begin to tell him that right now. Jesus, I don't, I don't pretend to predict when you're returning, but my heart's cry is that I kind of want to be there when you do. I've been waiting for that for most of my life. And so, Lord, make us ready. If it's us, I say good. Make us ready. If it's not us, I say good. Make us ready and let us deposit that message for the generations underneath us so that we're prepared, so we're wise, so we're prudent. And Lord, we say we're ready because 
Things are not as they should be. Things are broken. And we long for them to be made right, to be made new. Thank you, Lord, for the way that you deposit your presence in moments like this, in worship, in prayer, and in the fellowship of the saints. We're so glad to have that. We know that's a work of your spirit, but we long to see you on the throne, ruling and reigning. We long to see you in your rightful place. We long to see you in that place where you receive your bride and it is the delight of your heart and we are full and things are as they should be. Lord, give us oil. Bring us to that place where we can receive it. Soften our hearts so that we can receive it, God. We love you. We say you're worth it all.